From WNYC in New York, this is On the Media. Brooke Gladstone is away this week. I'm Bob Garfield. And this is Chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, Devin Nunes. Today I briefed the President on the concerns that I had about incidental collection and how it uh, relates to uh, President-elect Trump and uh, his transition team. Yikes. This is what they mean by the term highly irregular. For starters, it is the Congress with the oversight authority over the executive branch, not vice versa. Why would Nunes be briefing the president about committee activities? Why especially would he be briefing the central figure in the committee's investigation into Russian interference of the 2016 election? The answer to that is Nunes, a Trump backer, believed he had new information to bolster the White House claim that Barack Obama had bugged Trump Tower. That accusation had come in a notorious presidential tweet three weeks ago. How low has President Obama gone to tap my phones during the very sacred election process? This is Nixon Watergate, bad or sick guy. This week had begun, of course, at Nunes committee hearing with FBI Director James Comey calling Trump's allegation hogwash. I have no information that supports those tweets. Whereupon Trump and his spokesman Sean Spicer came back with, okay, maybe not wiretapped, wiretapped, but under surveillance. Nunes's big scoop, which he raced to share with the White House without even briefing his Democratic colleagues on the committee, was that communications of Trump campaign staffers were indeed found in routine intercepts of foreign intelligence targets and their names carelessly bandied about the spookosphere. Details about U.S. persons associated with the incoming administration, details with little or no apparent foreign intelligence value, were widely disseminated in intelligence community reporting. I want to be clear, none of this surveillance was related to Russia or the investigation of Russian activities or of the Trump team. So no, no wiretap and no, no Obama fingerprints and no, no targeting of Trump associates, but still evidence that the president was kind of, sort of on the right track. As we shall see in a moment, there may be good reason for outrage about what is called the unmasking of Americans incidentally caught up in vast sweeps of foreign targets. But this gets to the week's highest irregularity of all. Nunes is irate that American citizens could have their privacy and reputations so violated through literally unwarranted surveillance, yet the chairman himself has been a tireless advocate for precisely the laws that permit it, especially a passage in the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act called Section 702. Let's listen again to Nunes's terminology. Today I briefed the president on the concerns that I had about incidental collection and how it... Incidental uh, collection is when Americans' communications are picked up in the course of conducting surveillance of a foreign target. Liza Goitin is co-director of the Liberty and National Security Program at the Brennan Center for Justice at NYU. Incidental collection, she says, is the inevitable result when scads of messages to and from foreign subjects are hoovered into the intel cloud. No warrant necessary, as authorized by Section 702. So the way it works now, any foreigner overseas is fair game 
uh, regardless of whether either the foreigner or the American with whom the foreigner is communicating is suspected of any wrongdoing. And that really opens the door to mass surveillance. So what we saw in 2011, anyway, is that there were 250 million internet communications that were picked up under this authority. So in order to avoid spying on Americans, the government is supposed to mask the identities of those millions incidentally surveilled. But under the Nunes theory, Trump aides like Michael Flynn were unmasked and subsequently exposed through leaks. I think what Nunes was saying here was that the information was lawfully collected. Presumably the target was not an American, assuming that this happened under Section 702, but that the information about the Americans, in this case the Trump aides, was not properly minimized. The government is supposed to mask or delete the Americans' information after the government gets it. But there are numerous, numerous exceptions to that rule. And in fact, routinely, the NSA, the FBI, the CIA, they keep this data, Americans' communications, for years. And they can use it in all kinds of ways, in criminal investigations as well as national security investigations. And there are also many exceptions to the requirement that they mask the identities of the Americans before they share that information. The other astonishing aspect of this episode is that Nunes is suddenly so upset about the misuse of Section 702. Yes, Nunes has been a staunch champion of Section 702. We need to educate members of Congress on the importance of reauthorization of Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. He voted for Section 702 in 2008. He voted to reauthorize it in 2012. Representatives Massey and Lofgren offered an amendment that would have required a warrant for the government to search through Section 702 data for Americans' information. He wrote a letter to his colleagues saying how important it was to oppose the amendment and leave Section 702 the way it was. And I think that's causing a bit of cognitive dissonance for him now as he tries to support the Trump administration. He clearly has known all along what Section 702 does and what it's about. So that's why he's trying to somehow be critical of the surveillance that happened under the law without actually being critical of the law. Now back to the particulars. Here's Congressman Mike Lee, the Utah Republican, the Libertarian, speaking on Monday about the very nature of the wire tap that Trump alleged. President Trump might have been referring to something else, perhaps an order issued pursuant to Section 702 of the FISA amendments, one that was aimed at an operative of a foreign government, but incidentally brought in communications involving U.S. citizens, uh, some of whom perhaps might have been affiliated with the Trump campaign. I don't know. And uh, the president himself on Wednesday said, oh, yeah, yeah, that's exactly what I was doing. Uh, I meant wiretapping, not wiretapping. I wonder if actually their explanation is correct. Sure. I mean, I think the problem with Trump's tweet was that, you know, he was implying that President Obama personally you know, ordered the surveillance, which wouldn't be legal, and that there was a physical wiretap of his personal phones, which suggests that he personally was targeted. These things are not true. 
But I frankly would have been quite surprised if I had learned that there was no surveillance that picked up communications of Trump's aides. The Trump transition team was routinely communicating with foreign officials. In fact, probably a little more than a transition team should be doing. And picking up foreign officials' communications is what the NSA does, whether those officials are friends or foe. So it would have been a real surprise to me to learn that there was no information about Trump's campaign aides anywhere within the NSA's databases. This seems like kind of an arcane subject, the innards of a complex statute. But, you know, you'd be forgiven for thinking that the Intelligence Committee hearing in the House on Monday was convened not to discuss the Russia investigation, but Section 702 itself. Admiral Rogers, I'm going to begin with a question to you concerning the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. FISA Section 702. That's 702. Section 702. Under the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. There's been a focus in general in the House on Section 702, which is scheduled to expire at the end of this year unless it's reauthorized. And there was a hearing in the House Judiciary Committee on March 1st at which I testified. There was a tremendous amount of interest in how it's actually affecting Americans, how the communications that are pulled in can be used against Americans. There was a classified panel, which I was not there for that, but it went on for three hours. And I was told that all 30 members were in attendance. You've been getting calls from who all week? Oh, uh, I've gotten calls from reporters at conservative outlets. I appeared on Fox Business. Whether the president is right or wrong on the wiretapping claims that has ignited a much-needed debate on personal privacy and government spying on its citizens. Elizabeth Goitin joins me. She's co-director. This of is the definitely a topic that's of major interest now to conservatives, and I welcome that. Right. If anyone had said to you, they said, Liza... Once Trump is the president, we're going to get rid of this Section 702 once and for all. Tell me <laughs> tell me wh- what you would have said. I would have been startled. <laughs> I, I think that the people in the civil liberties community who have been working on this issue for a very long time pretty much thought that the prospects for 702 reform had taken a bit of a nosedive with the election of President Trump. I would say that there are a lot of mainstream conservatives who voted for Section 702 and voted to reauthorize it without really knowing what was in it. A lot of members probably really didn't understand what the implications were for Americans. So I think what we're seeing is just a shift in understanding and a shift in attitude toward the statute and what it can do. You mean now that what is good for the goose has been shown to be good for the gander? Exactly. There's no evidence right now that any abuse has actually happened in this case, but the potential is there, and that's the problem. We shouldn't have to wonder or guess whether the government is going too far in its surveillance of Americans. The law should be very clear that the government needs a warrant in order to access Americans' communications, and that surveillance of foreigners should only happen in cases where there is some potential threat to our country or our interests. So in some ways, these crazy tweets have done us a favor because they've really rejuvenated this issue, and rightly so. Liza, thank you. Thank you. Liza Goitin is co-director of the Liberty and National Security Program at the Brennan Center for Justice at NYU. Coming up, North Korea is on the warpath, and we are doomed. Or not. 
This is On The Media. This is On The Media. I'm Bob Garfield. Meanwhile, on Capitol Hill, Supreme Court nominee Neil Gorsuch's confirmation hearings this week have been pretty ho-hum in response to Democrats grilling him on his political views and past rulings, the judge has largely remained stoic and evasive. But when Rhode Island Senator Sheldon Whitehouse probed Gorsuch on his views about money in politics, things did get a little testy. Is it any cause of concern to you that your nomination is the focus of a $10 million political spending effort, and we don't know who's behind it. Senator, there's a lot about the confirmation process today that I regret. A lot. White House went on to note that the same dark money group pushing pro-Gorsuch ads spent at least $7 million on ads against President Obama's ill-fated nominee, Merrick Garland. And indeed produced that result by spending that money. And then now... We have $10 million going the other way. That's a $17 million delta. And for the life of me, I'm trying to figure out what they see in you that makes that $17 million delta worth their spending. Do you have any answer to that? You'd have to ask them. I can't because I don't know who they are. It's just a front group. The front group is the Judicial Crisis Network, a conservative 501c4 organization that works to fill the courts with constitutional originalists using ads that sound like this. A real outdoorsman, he rides horses and knows his way around a barn. Comfortable in the mountains, an expert fisherman. Neil Gorsuch is a family man, a conservative from Colorado. Neil Gorsuch has been called a natural successor to Justice Scalia. On issues of the Constitution, no one is stronger. Carrie Severino is Chief Counsel and Policy Director of the Judicial Crisis Network. Carrie, welcome to the show. Great to be here. So you're going to spend, before this is over with, like $10 million in advertising in support of the Gorsuch nomination. Who's the audience? The biggest part of our audience are these 10 senators in red states that are up for re-election in 2018, but in states that went for Trump in the last election. So I, I think those are the ones that are either going to choose between the, the partisan gridlock route or the vote for this clearly qualified and talented judge. <laughs> okay, the spin noted. But, uh, <laughs> on the subject of partisan gridlock, um, the conventional wisdom is that, you know, that's really not a scenario that's likely to take place, that Either he will be confirmed immediately or there will be an attempt at a filibuster whereupon rules will change and Gorsuch will still be confirmed so that it's kind of a foregone conclusion. If that's the case, why spend all that dough? Well, I think that's the reason we're seeing that everyone acknowledges at this point Gorsuch is definitely going to be confirmed is because we've done the hard work of trying to make that case. Now, I asked your wife, blow all this money if the nomination is a foregone conclusion. And by the way, if I'm saying it is, it almost certainly isn't because I'm never right about anything ever. <laughs> but uh, the Democrats uh, seem to see it the same way. They've spent, at least according to the Washington Post, 
less than $200,000 to fight the Gorsuch nomination. Is it because they consider it a lost cause? Is it because they view the political ecosystem differently? Is it because they can't agree on a message? Do you know why you're running your ads virtually unopposed? Well, they uh, recognized that it was going to be too much of an uphill battle. But I do think there's a lot of groups on the left that are incensed at the fact that Democrats haven't put more, both more money and more effort behind it. You know, there's a lot of people on the left most edge of their base that are really wanting to put pressure on. Now, and that might not translate to dollars, but they certainly seem to think they've got a lot of momentum. But I think at the end of the day also, it has been hard for the Democrats to agree on a strategy. You've had some people like Senators Manchin and Heitkamp who say they're not going to filibuster him. They don't think that's right. When you've had several other people who've kind of gone back and forth about what the proper standard should be. So I don't think the Democratic Party has a consistent strategy yet. Straight away, I asked you why spend $10 million to back a certain winner. And you said, well, you know, one of the reasons he's a certain winner is because of the support that we have offered him from the moment of the announcement. Let me run a slightly more cynical scenario by you. Judicial Crisis Network, your organization is funded by dark money from God knows what sources. We literally don't know. And you exist on Earth to raise money and spend it. Is this a case of the money is there, you have to spend it, whether it's needed or not, to keep the beast alive, irrespective of the nomination that currently is at hand? Well, that's even more cynical than Senator Whitehouse during the hearings today. I'm impressed. No, I don't think that's it at all. We certainly aren't in the business of wasting money. And the fact of the matter is, ever since Judge Bork's nomination, really, and in particular ramped up during the second Bush's presidency, we have seen the Democrats politicizing the judiciary and really weaponizing the nominations process to a new level. We all know the Bork confirmation hearings, obviously the Justice Thomas's hearings. But in the 2000s, the Democrats started using the filibuster in an unprecedented way against scores of appellate nominees, in some cases filibustering multiple times. This had never been done in history. And uh, we simply have to be able to respond. Not to respond to that level of partisanship would be to simply cede the field to the Democrats who are trying to use these games to reshape the judiciary. So we need to realize they're playing hardball and make sure that we're there to make the case. You know, I think probably McConnell's decision not to give the Garland nomination, even a hearing, that's some hardball itself, is it not? I think it was partly possible because of what the Democrats did, for example, to change the rules in 2013. If they hadn't done the filibuster rule change in 2013, we wouldn't you have had people like it. Senator Graham. No, you started it. I'm not, I'm not saying that wouldn't be, have been McConnell's position, but you certainly would not have had the unified Republican support that you did. Under the circumstances where you had a policy laid out, by then-Senator Biden, similar things said by Senator Schumer. We should not even move to hearings on a nominee. The president should not nominate someone. It's inappropriate to bring that into the political process. When the Democrats have said they would do something, I think it's understandable the Republicans take them at their word and say, all right, this is the rules of the game as the Democrats have said they would play them. I got it. And as you mentioned before, the borking of Bork was the original sin. You described the uh, Democrats' response to the Gorsuch nomination as hysterical and the threat of a filibuster to be a new low. Those don't sound like credible talking points. Do you really feel them in your heart, or is this just something 
that you as a conservative thought leader feel obliged to say? You tell me you don't think the Democrats have been hysterical about this? Ask the people who are protesting on Chuck Schumer's lawn saying he's not doing enough to block everything that Donald Trump does. I think it's absolutely true. And it's simply a matter of historical fact that no Supreme Court nominee with clear majority support, as I think Gorsuch clearly has, has been blocked by a filibuster. Chuck Schumer would like to break that agreement of people saying, you know, we just don't do this for Supreme Court nominees. So that's how that would be a new low. Carrie, thank you very much. Have a great night. Carrie Severino is chief counsel and policy director of the Judicial Crisis Network. Have you heard? We're about to be at war with North Korea. There's been a new act of defiance from North Korea, firing banned ballistic missiles overnight. And tonight, North Korea is making an alarming claim that those launches were a trial run for a future strike on U.S. military bases in Japan. The White House calls North Korea's latest missile test a provocation, as a top U.S. defense official tonight confirms to NBC News that a major policy review is underway to confront and contain the threat of North Korea's missiles and nuclear weapons. How big of a threat do you see the North Koreans right now? It's the number one threat. It is the absolute number one threat. Miniature nukes, long-range missiles, murdered officials, poisoned half-brothers, bellicose threats of U.S. annihilation. The erratic, totalitarian, cornered rat of a regime is out of control, and we are on the brink of catastrophe. Or not. David Kong is a professor of international relations and business at the University of Southern California and the director of USC's Korean Studies Institute. He says that North Korea is a horror show, all right, but a predictable one and one that lashes out mainly only when provoked. I think the biggest crucial thing that we keep missing is that North Korea's threats are almost always couched in defensive terms. It's not, we will attack you out of the blue. It's, if you attack us first, we will take you down with us. And they're pretty consistent. They say it pretty clearly. And the media tend to overlook that first part of the commentary from North Korea. I want to ask you about that. It seems that North Korea sees the United States, which it portrays in actual satanic terms, as an ongoing existential threat to its existence. But are we that? Is this just a paranoid fear on their part? Where do they get the notion that we are a threat to them? Because we say it over and over again, and this is what we ignore. We're in the same place that we were 20 years ago when I was in graduate school. We threaten them, they threaten us. Secretary of State Tillerson just went to South Korea and said all options are on the table. We are openly talking about preemptive strikes on North Korea's nuclear facilities. And we had our B-1 stealth bombers running exercises in South Korea. Now, these are the stealth bombers. You're not supposed to be able to see them. But we show these photos. We're like, this is what we can do. Just blatant chest thumping on our part. But we either ignore the threats that we make towards North Korea. Or we say, well, look, we would never really do that. We're not really a threat to North Korea. Then they say the identical thing. And we say, oh, my God, they're out to get us. And you know what? Once we get past all the rhetoric, both sides believe each other, which is why we haven't started a war. And I'm not saying it's all fine, right? Deterrence rests on some pretty horrific consequences. But the fact is, deterrence has worked for almost 70 years now. Deterrence is not a solution. It's just status quo. 
nobody wants to live with North Korea the way they are. We all want it to change. But nobody has a really good idea how to do it. Now, there is one difference, and that is we periodically do exercises with the South Korean military and others in the region to kind of thump our chests about our capabilities. The North Koreans do actual provocative, violent acts in the region. They'll sink a Japanese ship here. They will fire a test missile into Japanese waters. They will actually do stuff that has life and death consequences. People died when they torpedoed a South Korean ship. So if this is kind of an ongoing battle of chest puffing, isn't their end of it more dangerous and provocative than ours? You know, what's interesting about the ship that they torpedoed, the Chunan, in March 2010, it was portrayed as an out-of-the-blue attack on a South Korean naval ship that killed 46 sailors. Absolutely life-and-death consequences. What we forget is that four months earlier, in November 2009, a South Korean ship shot up a North Korean naval vessel, engulfing it in flames. We don't know how many people died because they're North Korean. We don't care. But what the North Koreans explicitly said in November 2009 is, you will pay a dear price. Four months later, they sank the Chunan. I'm not saying it's okay, but it was not a surprise. When people said, this is the start of World War III, I said, no, it's not. It's one for one. It's an eye for an eye. To explain the dynamics of confrontation does not mean I am defending North Korean actions. It is so hard to say, look, there's a cycle going on here without appearing like you're defending North Korea. And I'm not. It's a horrific regime. My point is, though, that the dynamics of confrontation are much more complex than we view. And the Chunan is the perfect example. I must ask you about the sense of insecurity because the regime itself just seems so nutty and erratic and <laughs> desperate because their economy was long since flattened and they can only sustain themselves with foreign aid. People are starving. A lot of people are in jail. There's constant talk of dissatisfaction in the upper ranks. There's talks of murderous purges of generals, including relatives of Kim Jong-un. Are we wrong to think that there is such chaos there that anything could happen? Yes, absolutely. I think this is one of the biggest misperceptions about North Korea that we have, which is that it is a regime sitting on top of a seething mass of chaos and resentful people that at any moment can collapse. And I think one of the biggest reasons that American policy towards North Korea has had problems over the decades is that we cannot see it as a real country with real people and a real government. We don't like it, but there are plenty of dictators and undemocratic regimes out there that are nasty, that survive. And probably one of the most enduring things about North Korea is it hasn't collapsed, and I see no indication that it's going to collapse. Everything you've said is sort of roughly true. There's starving, there's famine. But you know what? The famine was far worse 20 years ago when maybe a half million people died. That was a real famine. It didn't collapse then, and compared to that, it's actually doing better. And I was skeptical when Kim Jong-un, the current North Korean leader, took over six years ago. He's ruled for five or six years, and there is no indication he's losing power. What should the news consumers do when reading these hyperventilated stories or seeing them on cable news to have a better frame of understanding about how seriously to take all of the scary headlines? 
And one thing that I would point out to the listeners, whenever you hear something about North Korea, take it with a massive grain of salt, discounted by 90%. Because most of these reports of coup attempts or of rice riots or anything almost always are from one anonymous inside source somewhere or defector. Total rumors that are made up and then repeated among this small circle of policy analysts and journalists and scholars, which we then repeat, and then we go back and cite each other for having said it, so it must be true. All right, so if this is in fact a cyclical story that bubbles up and then it settles down and bubbles up again predictably a year or two later and then settles down, when will we know that it's time to really pay attention? Are we at risk of the boy who cries... Kim Jong-un? Well, I mean, one of the first things is that there is a method to the missile launches. These things don't happen, again, in a vacuum. Every country that's trying to develop missiles and nuclear weapons wants to test because that's how you improve them and get better. But even so, North Korea does them in a calculated fashion. And while we're in negotiations with North Korea, they never do these provocations. So partly is looking at how often they're doing the missile and nuclear tests. In many ways, it's been a very slow motion proliferation by North Korea. We're going on to the third decade. We're 25 years in to the nuclear crisis. This has not been a headlong rush the way Pakistan and India did it. The biggest sign that I think there's going to be change is going to be inside of North Korea. I think we overlook the fact that this is a country and has leaders and people with their own agency. And probably we have a limited ability to affect anything that they do. To me, the real canary in the coal mine is real domestic turmoil of some type. And we don't really see it yet. David, thank you so much. My pleasure. Anytime. David Kong is director of the Korean Studies Institute at the University of Southern California. In the absence of information about the government and citizens of North Korea, lurid rumors fill the vacuum. North Korea executes purged officials using a flamethrower. The government forces young men to have the same haircut as its leader, Kim Jong-un, who, by the way, is addicted to cheese. Piece by piece, they put together a bizarre, cartoonish depiction of this mysterious nation. If a billion people across the earth and in my own country must be burned to prove it, then my worthiness as a king will be demonstrated! That's from the notorious failed missile launch of a comedy, The Interview. But you don't need to go to Hollywood to find absurd great leader fodder. Kim Jong-un, him and his bad haircut and those half eyebrows. Have you seen those? Those Nobody are awesome. Nobody's not noticed the eyebrows. Three quarters. Yeah, three quarters. freaky Is stuff going on with the eyebrows. For himself a fan of Western culture, here's the North Korean leader watching a performance by Disney characters. And who can forget his fascination with American basketball star Dennis Rodman? What we think of as this caricature is actually 25 million human beings trapped in there. Suki Kim is an investigative journalist and author. In 2011, she went undercover to report from within North Korea, eventually to publish a book about her experiences titled, Without You, There Is No Us. She says that while the U.S. media trades in black humor where North Korea is concerned, she could find nothing about life there to laugh about. The reality, as I began to dig into it living in there, inside a system, 
is worse than my worst nightmare because, yes, there are political concentration camps within North Korea. But just the basic human right of being alive and moving about and thinking, none of that is allowed within North Korea. On top of it being one of the poorest countries in the world and one of the most violent places where public execution is sanctioned by the government, I think that covering that as a journalist is a huge responsibility because you are creating a public perception of the level of gravity of the entire issue. So you believe that the press in gaping at North Korea and constantly expressing astonishment at the rigidity of the regime and the plight of the people actually gloss over the plight of the people. Don't get me wrong. I think there are amazing journalists working incredibly hard to get into this truth, which is impossible to get to because North Korea only issues propaganda. But when you do look at the way North Korea is covered, you will see a lot of sensational headlines let's say, some execution or, of course, the murder of Kim Jong-nam that just happened in Kuala Lumpur Airport. Smeared with poison in a Malaysian airport by Vietnamese agents of Kim Jong-un with the cameras rolling. For what reason, it's hard to know because he was a half-brother long since in self-imposed exile. How did we cover that story wrong? The real seriousness of that news was really not about these details on those two hired killers. One seen in surveillance images with an LOL shirt, the other an Indonesian woman. Her family claims she thought she was part of a candid camera TV show. I couldn't believe that respectable media spent any energy recycling that information of the T-shirt design of one of the hired killers. When the reality really was, number one, the choice of weapon, which was this VX agent, which they call one of the most toxic chemical weapons known to mankind. And second, of course, this murder was not really necessary because Kim Jong-nam was exiled since 2003 at least. So it was not a rival to this degree for the current great leader to order execution. So then why? What is going on within North Korea? The timing of the entire murder, because obviously the surrounding countries, South Korea going through an impeachment of a president, United States with a new president, with this unknown policy towards North Korea, what is going on with China currently, all these issues are really important ones to ask. What is it? about this regime that our failure of imagination forces us to snicker instead of to be appalled. No one can go run about North Korea and investigate to really understand what's going on. You know, it's almost like celebrity reporting where you might write about Angelina Jolie's hairstyle for an entire page. Literally, there would be articles about the great leader's haircut over and over and over. When he had his uncle killed in 2013, There were articles about how he fed his body to dogs. You don't look at them as human beings so that their suffering becomes funny. I do think also North Korean regime is very good at manipulating that. That's kind of what they want to distract from the real news. The year I was living in North Korea, all North Korean universities were shut by force. And all university students were taken out of the university for a year and put into construction field except this one university where I ended up teaching undercover to write the book. There was like this 270 young men in a really fancy school funded by foreign money. And 
you know, the media was invited in to cover this school as a propaganda tool. BBC went in there. It was the Potemkin Village. Yeah, they did this coverage of this really fancy school with healthy-looking kids. But the reality was all university kids were in construction field doing manual labor. So now you've done reporting that is really actually a press kit. There's another example you cite about the press being just totally played by the regime. 2008, New York Philharmonic. I went in for Harper's Magazine to cover New York Philharmonic's concert in Pyongyang, and about 100 journalists were officially invited. And that event was generally covered as a musical diplomacy, how New York Philharmonic's music moved North Koreans to tears. You know, I'm sorry. That just was not true. North Koreans would not be crying at Korean's music. That is not that culture. <laughs> so it was some American fantasy. You know, Pyongyang looked beautiful that day. All the lights were up. It's a country that has virtually no electricity among citizens. You know, the problem between North Korea and also South Korea and the United States and the nuclear issues or their torture of their own citizens, it's not a problem that can be fixed with a concert. There's very little access to North Korea. You certainly have no reason to believe anything from the official line. The propaganda comes at you relentlessly. Everyone is afraid to speak to the Western press, assuming they ever have access to the Western press. How in the world are we supposed to do it right? One thing that I have learned is when the core is so rotten, everything around it will also be rotten. It's like, you know, investigating mafia. Everyone you talk to are also going to be a bit of thugs. And I think that that's sort of true with North Korea. But I think through time when you talk to enough people and you start comparing numbers or what they have said, you start getting a bit clearer picture of how that society functions. So it just takes more work because you just have to sift through all this extra stuff, a lot of which will be lies. But isn't that what investigative journalism is? Suki, thank you. Thank you. Suki Kim is an investigative reporter whose book on North Korea is titled, Without You, There Is No Us. Coming up, the Secretary of State leaves the annoying diplomatic press corps at home and instantly pays a price. This is on the media. This is on the media. I'm Bob Garfield. Last weekend, Secretary of State Rex Tillerson became the subject of some unfortunate news. Secretary of State Rex Tillerson's visit to Asia seems to be taking a toll on him. The Korea Herald reports that he turned down a meal with South Korea's foreign minister and acting president and prime minister because of fatigue. Yikes. That's kind of embarrassing. Not true, but embarrassing. The supposed snub was invented by someone in the South Korean press and quickly took on a life as an internet meme. Hashtag Tillerson is tired, which isn't likely to go away soon, and for which Tillerson has only himself to blame. Because he didn't have a press corps with him, he was not able to counteract that spin. The Washington Post's Glenn Kessler was a State Department journalist for nine years, chronicling the diplomatic efforts of Secretaries Colin Powell, Condoleezza Rice, and Hillary Clinton. He says that Tillerson, 
who has declared that he's, quote, not a big media press access person, made his own bed when he left for Asia, not with the usual press contingent, but one lone journalist. He thus lacked the pool of media eyewitnesses to counter fake news with truth. Well, you know, you first have to understand that the State Department press corps, it's a pretty distinguished group of people. These are usually people that have covered the White House before or have been foreign correspondents. And they tend to be a kind of a nerdy bunch, very deep in the issues. They will often know as much or more about the issues than the Secretary of State. Perhaps uniquely in government coverage, the press corps traveling with the Secretary of State perform not just as eyewitnesses, but as, in a way, participants in the evolution of policy as a sounding board or foil. Tell me the role that those people in the secretary's plane play on a foreign trip. One particular instance I remember in 2005, the Bush administration was facing real diplomatic problems in Europe because the Washington Post had exposed the black site prisons that were used for detainee interrogations. And in order to calm the Fuhrer, Condoleezza Rice read a statement at Andrews Air Force Base, a very carefully crafted statement, before her departure for Europe. And then we got on the plane, and she met with the reporters for a further briefing. And I had crafted a question that identified a logical inconsistency in the policy that she had outlined, and she could not answer my question. So she then went to the front of her plane with her staff and said, we have a problem here. We need to fix this. And she then contacted the White House and said, we've got to figure out a way to answer Glenn's question. And they worked for a couple days to come up with language. And a day or two later in Kiev, Ukraine, when we were waiting to have a press conference with her, one of her aides came up and said, she would like you to ask your question again. And she then had an answer for it, which solve the problems that Europeans were having with the very first statements she had put out. And it actually then smoothed the way for her to attend a NATO meeting where the diplomats were very pleased by what seemed to be a new shift in American policy. What I did was I identified a serious hole in their policy as articulated by Secretary Rice. And as she told me later that they realized they had that hole and hoped no one would notice it. (laughs) But because I called them out on it, they realized they had to address it. Which gets to the old rap against State Department reporters that they go native and they start wearing tweed and smoking pipes and they forget that they're with the press and imagine they're part of the diplomatic corps themselves. I would argue that a lot of our coverage of the secretary was often very skeptical. I mean, I wrote a book about Condoleezza Rice, which she was not particularly happy about. And when we were traveling once to North Africa, one of the Al-Qaeda groups there put out a statement saying that it was time to smite the head of the snake. And someone asked her if if, uh, she was worried about this death threat. And her response was, not really. Glenn writes worse things about me every day. (laughs) All right. Okay, fine. So you're adversarial. You know, one big difference from covering just about any other cabinet agency is that you are on the plane with the secretary. And so you're there on the plane with the aides. You know, you would kind of gather around the bathroom and track people down and ask questions. You know, Condi Rice had a tradition on a long trip. She would set aside an evening just to have dinner with the press corps to 
further explain what she was trying to do and how she was trying to do it. Hillary Clinton did a similar thing. You know, you would meet her at the bar later and just talk about what was going on and how they were trying to do it. So the coverage is often very critical and adversarial. We're testing their ideas. We're probing. But at the same time, you have real access to a pretty senior government official that you often do not have in most beats in Washington. But diplomacy is a particularly difficult environment for journalism because nobody says exactly what they're thinking. It's all code and subtext and formalistic language. And if you were to report only on what is actually said in public, you would never learn anything about anything. A lot of it is interpretive. When I was covering State Department, one of my editors said to me, you know, Kessler, I realize what you cover is fog. Sometimes it's light fog, sometimes it's gray fog, but it's always fog. (laughs) And it's because you know the code, right? There's a certain hieroglyphics of diplomatic speech that you have to understand, which I guess is why the diplomatic reporting ecosystem is what it is. So how do you, as a diplomatic correspondent, cover the news without performing some sort of de facto PR function for the administration? Well, first of all, you need to have sources in foreign governments. When I wrote about North Korea policy, I got some of my best information from Japanese and South Korean diplomats, which I then would run past American diplomats who would then reluctantly confirm what I had learned. It's not just taking the bits and pieces that you get from the administration, but it's really triangulating among all the players. So I'm writing about the Middle East. I'd go to the Palestinians. I'd go to the Israelis. I'd go to the Saudis. I'd go back and forth. It was a game of running around and talking to as many possible people as you can. Getting back to Tillerson, what is he depriving himself of by not having a press pool accompany him on these trips? Well, he's not getting feedback about the messaging that he's trying to send. And he's also missing the opportunity to send messages to his foreign counterparts before he even gets there. Colin Powell and Condoleezza Rice in particular were very good about always having an on-the-record briefing with the reporters before they landed in a new capital. Every single leg, on the record, answering questions. And a lot of times... We would be asking things about what was going to be coming up in his or her meetings in that particular capital, say Seoul. And then when we landed, we would all file stories. That meant that the diplomats in Seoul would already see what the message is of the administration as they're coming there before they even have a meeting. And then they can respond to that. It would advance the diplomacy ahead of whatever private meeting they were going to have. It would send signals to the newspapers and the think tanks and everyone else in that country. So already they've accomplished a lot before they've even stepped foot in that capital. Just to be clear, this is not unique to the American press. All of the other foreign ministers also have a press corps, and they are using theirs in precisely the same way. So Tillerson's showing up at a gunfight with a uh, penknife, huh? Right, or he has a gun that doesn't have any bullets in it. Yes, that's exactly right. Because I don't don't think you can function without having the media there. On Hillary Clinton's first trip, she got in huge trouble because of an answer she provided about how she was going to raise human rights in Beijing because he seemed to dismiss it as an important issue. 
And all the human rights groups made a big stink about it, and the State Department immediately arranged for her to meet with dissidents, and she adjusted her language on how she was talking about human rights, and she learned a better way to deal with that issue. A lot of the questions are really challenging, and they have the effect of forcing U.S. officials to understand whether or not the policy they're pursuing is even viable. The reason you have the media around is in order to advance your policy objectives, and He's not going to be as effective a diplomat if he's not talking to the media. Glenn, thank you very much. You're welcome. Glenn Kessler was a State Department journalist for nine years. He currently writes the Fact Checker column at The Washington Post. That's it for this week's show on the media. is produced by Mira Sharma, Alana Casanova-Burgess, Jesse Brenneman, and Michael Lowinger. We had more help from Sara Kari, Leia Fetter, and Kate Bakhtiarova. And our show was edited this week by our executive producer, Katya Rogers. Our technical director is Jennifer Munson. Our engineers this week were Terrence Bernardo and Sam Baer. Jim Schachter is WNYC's Vice President for News. Bassist composer Ben Allison wrote our theme. On the Media is a production of WNYC Studios. Before I sign off, a reminder to go to our website, onthemedia.org, and sign up for our weekly newsletter to be entered automatically to win a hat crocheted by Brooke. I'm Bob Garfield. Support for On the Media comes from the Overbrook Foundation and the listeners of WNYC Radio.